Good morning, dear intriguer. If you're a vegetarian living in Bangkok and craving your favorite fast foods, might I interest you in Burger King Thailand's newest 2,500 calorie cheeseburger, which is just 20 slices of American cheese between two buns? On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss the latest on the Black Sea grain deal and climate negotiations between the U.S. and China. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, we were just talking about the smoke blowing through DC. How are you coping? Uh, yeah, it's it just it just follows me around everywhere. It's it's a bit of a bummer, but luckily it's like a it's a hundred degrees. We we can't talk Fahrenheit and Celsius, but it's a hundred <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit, which is some very outrageous number in Celsius. So yeah. the smoke doesn't really matter because I'm staying inside no matter what. Uh, well, that's good to hear. <laughs> but John. Uh, to the news of the day. Uh, yeah. And, and let's just start with, with some background here. We're talking about uh, the Black Sea grain deal. Uh, I think the context here is, you know, not long after Russia's invasion of Ukraine began last February, we, we started to realize just how intertwined these economies were and how important the two combatant countries are in the global economy and especially in the global food economy. Yeah, right. Uh, hugely important. And, and to be honest, it's something that I probably wasn't as aware of uh, as I should have been. Um, you know, we've, I think we all talk a lot about Russia as a, an oil exporter, a gas exporter, um, and how the sanctions on its you know, fossil fuel industry uh, have caused fuel prices to spike and all of that kind of stuff. But Russia is also a massive grain exporter. It was the largest wheat exporter um, as of 2020. Uh, and it's also a huge fertilizer exporter, which is a big deal for a lot of countries, including you know Brazil or whatever. They, they, they buy a lot of their fertilizer from, from Russia. Um, and then you add to that Ukraine, which was the world's fifth largest wheat exporter, third largest corn exporter, and the largest exporter of seed oils. Um, you know, this whole region, I think people have heard it referred to as like the breadbasket of Europe, and that's why. So on wheat alone, Ukraine and Russia made up a quarter of exports before before the war. Right. So, John, as we know, war war is complicated. The old saying, all is fair in love and war. Obviously, that's not quite true, though you wouldn't know it by <laughs> no. uh, talking to my my ex-girlfriend. But we know uh, <laughs> that countries at war will, will do a lot to gain an advantage. So how did the global community ensure that these critical exports weren't disrupted during the course of the war? Yeah, it's a good question. I think folks may have heard uh, that uh, last July, there was this this idea that a deal was negotiated to allow wheat exports to pass through the Black Sea. So Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey agreed that Ukrainian ships, notwithstanding the Russian ships in the Black Sea preventing, you know, Ukrainian movement, they would allow Ukrainian ships that had uh, that had grain on them to pass through the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus Straits um, and, and out into global markets. Um, it was critical because, you know, there are ways to get the grain from Ukraine overland out through Europe trains and, and what trucks and whatnot, but it just can't really handle the the volume of grain that we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, I, I think it was a huge diplomatic breakthrough. It was a big worry this time last year about, you know, how we're going to get all that grain out of Ukraine. Um, and so when, when Russia agreed to it, I think it was seen as like a a really important, sensible move from all parts. Um, I think the UN estimated as many as 47 million people around the world uh could be pushed into 
acute food insecurity because of this war. So that that deal that was struck last year has allowed 33 million metric tons of food to exit Ukraine, which, you know, that that almost certainly has saved millions of lives uh, around the world. And and that brings us to yesterday when Russia announced it would be pulling out of the deal and potentially putting those millions of lives that you mentioned at risk. And mind you, John, it, it also comes just five days after the UN reported that global food insecurity uh, in a landmark report is getting much, much worse. Yeah, I mean, it's never a good time to pull out of a deal that is going to, you know, feed the world. It's never a good thing. Global food insecurity is a problem that is, you know, it's enormous. So it's never a good time, but it, this is, seems like a particularly bad time. But, you know, I don't, I don't think Russia's decision is particularly surprising. They've been threatening to to pull out of this deal pretty much since it started. Every couple of months, they they say that we're, we're going to suspend our participation. Um, it nearly broke down. Uh, last October, um, after Ukraine allegedly launched some drone attacks on cities in Crimea. Um, this time around, I think the rationale for Russia's withdrawal is that uh, Western sanctions, well, they say Western sanctions are limiting their ability to export food and, and fertilizer. And they say that those sanctions are kind of preventing the humanitarian mission of the deal from being fulfilled. So that they want the sanctions lifted, essentially. John, John before we move on, you mentioned that Ukrainian drone attack on Crimea as an earlier reason mm. why Russia might suspend the deal. And in a, in a coincidence, perhaps more than a coincidence, yesterday, just hours before this announcement, uh, Ukraine disabled the, the Kerch Bridge connecting Russia and Crimea using, yet again, a, a drone attack. Any link, you think, between these two events? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know, right? It's a, such a sa- unsatisfying answer that I always come up with. But um, the Russian spokesman, for whatever it's worth, said that there is no link. Um, I, I tend to think that's probably right because the decision to withdraw from the grain deal has probably been made in advance, as you'd imagine. You know, it requires sign-off from, from the Kremlin, you'd think. Um, and frankly, I can't really see the strategy behind Ukraine attacking the bridge to, like imagine Ukraine knew about the decision to withdraw from the Green Deal. I can't imagine them attacking the bridge as kind of like punishment. That doesn't make sense to me. But you know, I, I don't think we'll know um, anytime soon. Anyway. So what's next? I mean, let's let's imagine here that the West uh, accedes to to Russia's demands, agrees to lift some of these sanctions. Very unlikely, of course, mm-hmm. but but if they did, what's next? Well, Russia says it would return to the Green Deal to start off with. Um, I think you're right that it's very hard to imagine. Western countries would be eager to help uh, Russia raise any revenues for their war effort, which which lifting sanctions would allow them to do. Um, and I think that gets to the, you know, this whole issue gets to the heart of of the challenge with any sanctions regime. They they are a blunt instrument. They they're not particularly targeted, and they inevitably harm folks around the world that they are not necessarily designed to harm. Um, but, you know, I think I think what, what we're seeing here is that Russia's trying to change the narrative of this war in the global south. That that Those are the countries that we're talking about that are largely affected by this pulling out of the grain deal. You know, we're talking about countries in Africa who are reliant on these exports, you know, Latin America, same thing. Um, Russia's trying to say to these countries, hey, the coming food shortage that you're going to experience because the, we've pulled out of this grain deal isn't because we're blockading Ukrainian ships, you know, 
pay no attention to the fact that we invaded Ukraine, please. But it's because the West is actually sanctioning us. And that's so unfair. Um, you know, you can probably tell from my tone that I think that's a load of BS, but it's an argument in the global South that might play well. You know, a lot of these countries aren't a fan of the US and, and the West for, for legitimate reasons. So they might be open to the idea that, hey, uh, the, the fact that Russia isn't allowing grain out of Ukrainian ports is actually because the West is sanctioning Russia. Uh, you, you never know, right? Yeah. I think both sides see the global the global South as uh, at least rhetorically territory to be won. Yes. The West is entrenched in their position. Yeah. Russia is obviously has their own position. So who's, less to, who's left to convince? It's, it's these countries that have not quite made up their right. mind. Will Will Russia's gambit here work? Do you think? Look, I don't think so. Um, I think uh, let let's let's be like sort of realistic about it. The the dynamics that forged the deal last July, uh, I think, still apply, and that is that Russia was kind of brought into this deal because those global South countries made Russia come into the deal. Um, they kind of said, you know, the grain deal was sort of the the global South's price almost for not openly criticizing Putin or, you know, you know, abstaining in the UN, these kinds of things. So they said, hey, if you don't sign up to this deal, um, you know, we're going to, we're not going to support you. So I, I can't see any of those dynamics have really changed. You know, there's no different source of grain that these countries have found. They still need food, probably even more than they needed it before. Um, so, you know, Russia is going to essentially be saying, sorry about that, but you got, go starve. Um I think the most likely outcome here is that the Russia will come back into the deal. Uh, President Erdogan of Turkey, you know, apparently he plans to talk to Putin about this issue pretty soon. And my guess is that Putin is playing for more leverage in these kinds of talks. Um, and, and, you know, they'll return to the deal. You know, perhaps, perhaps Putin will be able to save face by saying Erdogan negotiated, gave me some assurances or whatever it is. But I would be surprised if we don't have some arrangement to allow the grain to be exported again pretty soon. Today's show is sponsored by one of my favorite newsletters, 1440. The team from 1440 monitors scores of news sites to find the stories that matter the most from science and culture to business, politics, even sports. They then pull the most important pieces together into a single digest every weekday morning. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back, John. Here's your chance to share what's on your mind. So, Lay it on us. I know. I've only been waiting 30 plus years for a, a dedicated spot to tell everyone what's on my mind. <laughs> um, I am uh, interested at the moment in John Kerry's trip to China. So uh, John Kerry is the US you know, special envoy for climate change matters. And he's just arrived in Beijing for three days of talks uh, with his counterpart um, on all things climate change. Uh, you know, I think... Interestingly, Kerry's a bit of a favorite of the Chinese. They, they, you know, they. I think the New York Times noted today in in their coverage of this that uh, Kerry and his counterpart have negotiated with one another for more than twenty years. There's a long-standing, uh, standing relationship, so they refer to each other as old friends. So, you know, Kerry will probably be pretty welcome in 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 Beijing. But I think the interesting thing about his trip is that there are two broader dynamics. The first is the micro context of climate change cooperation between China and the U.S. Um, Kerry, I think, wants to kind of carve out the idea of climate change cooperation from the broader relationship. He wants to sort of say that this shouldn't be political, it's not bilateral, but rather it's a global issue and China and the US as you know, the two biggest countries in the world need to 
work together on this. Uh, I think conversely, China wants to tie climate change action to the broader relationship. It kind of sees US wants climate change cooperation and, and China, I think, sees that as a bargaining chip to try and get some of what it wants from the US. John, I'm I'm getting a little frustrated here because you promised us two key dynamics, and I'm but by my count, there's only been one. So what's the other? You know, good thing has come to those who wait, Ethan. The second dynamic <laughs> is um, it's the broader context of Kerry's visit, and I think this is the big story. He's the third official um, after Secretary of State Blinken and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen. Uh, to visit China in, in pretty quick succession. Um, there's also word on the street in DC that uh, the Commerce Secretary, uh, Raimondo, Gina Raimondo, um, she'll be heading to Beijing in September fr from, from what I hear. Um, and actually Blinken met China's top foreign affairs official Wang Yi in Jakarta last week. So the TLDR of that is there's a lot of high level activity happening between the US and China, a lot of meetings. Um, and that's after they've spent most of this year refusing to meet and, you know, jabbing at each other in the press and, and through speeches. And all of that has me wondering whether this is a bit of a signal that Biden and she are preparing to meet in person. This is the kind of stuff that you do if you're trying to prepare for a leaders meeting. Um, you know, I think he, right here on this, uh, on this here show, we said some time ago that Xi Jinping kind of is in a bit of a pickle because he needs to get things back on even keel because the US just so happens to be this year's host for the apex summit in uh, in november um that's a challenge because she doesn't want to be snubbed at that meeting he doesn't want to be kind of just treated like a any old leader uh because that would not show that he's strong and that china is a strong country but he also you know he doesn't he can't risk not going to the meeting because then it looks like china is having a tantrum and not leading the world like they they consistently say they want to so i think she kind of has to secure a welcome in the us that befits his you know, his, what he thinks of his station in the world. And for that, the US-China relationship just needs to improve. So, you know, I, I don't know whether that means that the Biden and she will meet in November around the APEC meeting or whether they're planning a, a separate meeting before or between now and then. But these these high-level meetings that are happening in quick succession, that the nice tone or the improved tone that's coming out of them tends to suggest to me that uh, Biden and she will meet sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. So let's see. John, you're, you follow this stuff very closely. And I, I have a feeling- too, too closely, arguably. Yeah, I have a feeling this, <laughs> you're going to give us a, a frustratingly ambiguous answer to, the, to this next question. But are we, have we seen the floor? Are we, have we bottom, is, is, is the worst behind us? Yeah, I am going to give you a frustrating answer. Uh, it depends. I think I would like to think so, but- uh, you know, events, dear boy, other things that could happen. So if all everything goes to plan, I think probably the floor has been seen. But you know, it, another spy balloon, and and we're we're right back there. Right, right. But um, what's on your mind, Ethan? This is a chance for you to kind of tell me, get up on your soapbox. Well, John, thank you for asking. I've got the Iranian morality police on my mind, who over the weekend announced that they would once again be enforcing Islamic dress codes after. A fairly lengthy pause. Uh, and, and the context here, of course, is that last September, a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini was detained over an apparent dress code violation. She died three days later while in police custody. And her, her death, as we know, set off a huge protest movement, which a lot of experts said represented the biggest threat to the Iranian regime's rule since it came to power in 1979. Um, the regime took a, a twofold approach to the response. First, they arrested tens of thousands of protesters and executed dozens more. And 
They promised, I think surprisingly, to effectively disband this morality police and allow women to walk around in public without headscarves, which many of them proudly did. Even some took them off and burned them in the streets. Yeah, I, I remember that. And I'm you're, you're saying the morality police are now back. So does what does that tell us about those protests? Iran is a black box, uh, so it's really it's really right. really hard to tell where the protests stand. I will say I, I interviewed an expert on Iranian politics in March on this show and asked her that exact question because I was having a hard time getting information off the internet. And she said, yes, these protests are still going on in some places. They're continuing every night. And for all we know, that could still very well be the case in, in limited form. Mm. But I think with this announcement, the regime is effectively saying to the world that they feel fully back in the driver's seat, that they won, the protesters lost, and whatever concessions they initially offered are no longer on the table. So we're back to the status quo. Well, that's um, not great news for the Iranians and I, I guess for the rest of us who kind of hoped for uh, maybe some more freedom for folks over there. But um, if anyone is kind of not across this issue, I think you, that that uh, podcast that you mentioned that you did back in March was an, a fantastic listen. So I, I really would encourage folks to scroll back through the uh, the list of podcasts and, and give it a listen. It was a good one. Well, that that was about mostly about the nuclear issue, and and we were one of the questions I asked was you know at the end of these protests, if the hardliners in the regime are are ascendant, what does that mean for the nuclear issue? And it's probably not a great thing. So this is all mm. worth watching. And and with that. I bid you adieu, John. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ethan. Always good to chat. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, we're voting over at the International Intrigue newsletter on the greatest male athletes of all time. I still say, despite any evidence to the contrary, that it's Roger Federer. But make sure to tell us who you think takes the top spot. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.